This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswell killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome friends, my extended radio family, good to have you aboard. I hope you'll be with me for the duration. Interesting program for you tonight, uh, but uh, first just some uh, housekeeping uh, notes. First, uh, let me once again in case I neglected to do this last week, because uh, it was a very busy show last week as well, I want to again um, uh, formally welcome aboard two new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show, WTSL AM 1400 out of Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230, Claremont, New Hampshire. And uh, both of those uh, stations, I believe, sort of serving the uh, the greater uh, metro area, Burlington, Vermont, is included in that uh, market as well. Hanover, New Hampshire, Claremont, New Hampshire, uh, welcome. Very, very pleased to have you aboard. Hope you enjoy the program and look forward to hearing uh, from the good folks in the Granite State. Uh, now, last week, of course, everyone, uh, the world was meteor crazy, and I received an interesting email from our media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, uh, just a couple of days ago. Now, I, uh, Nelson is a, a very scholarly man, uh, and he tells me he's been pointing out some very interesting things about the, uh, the meteorite, that uh, alleged meteorite, some are saying, that, uh, that crashed in, the, uh, in, in Russia in a remote region uh, in the Ural Mountains. Now, Nelson sent me this email saying that's quite interesting. Uh, he studies the Bible, uh, Christian, devout Christian, and he says that the Ural, uh, the word Ural, uh, in Hebrew, it means God illumines or God illuminates or something to that extent. Uh, and he was, uh, Nelson was pointing out that, uh, you know, when this meteorite came crashing down, I mean, it was brighter than the sun. And uh, so Nelson and others, of course, have pointed out that perhaps this is some sort of message from the Almighty. So there you go. Interesting. We'll uh, keep on top of that. Uh, We do have a couple of meteorite stories up on the website, and you can uh, follow those at richardserrett.com and say hello on Twitter. Last week, we began, uh, it was the first in what will be a, a series of programs uh, dedicated to the JFK assassination. 
Uh, tonight is part two. After tonight, we'll take a break, and then in, in a couple of months, we'll pick it up again with parts three and four, and we'll continue this. There is so much material out there uh, that, and, and, and you may have thought that you know everything there is to know if you've heard everything there is to know about uh, JFK uh, and the JFK assassination, but not true. Uh, 20 years ago, James Eugenio released a book, uh, and here we are 20 years later. He's It's heavily revised. It's called a second edition, but it's, it's almost a total rewrite because in the last 20 years, so much information has come out uh, documents and so forth that essentially Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case is a whole new book and we'll tell you how to get a, a copy of it. Last week we sort of set the table and talked about the um, the the state of the world, the, the uh, geopolitical milieu, you will, if you will, uh, that JFK found himself in when he came to office and uh, that includes, of course, the uh, the the emergence of the United States as a superpower during the Cold War, the the rise of the U.S. national security state under the CIA and their covert operations around the world, and of course uh, the uh, the um, the Bay of Pigs, the botched Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco, in which the CIA and some Cuban expats tried to overthrow uh, Castro, and eventually uh, Kennedy's rapprochement with, uh, with uh, Castro. So that's sort of where we left things off last week. And uh, so tonight we begin part two with James Eugenio, co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He was co-author uh, co and editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy, and Malcolm X. And, of course, we just observed, uh, I believe it was the 47th anniversary of Malcolm X's uh, murder. He's also the co-author, as I say, of this recently published second edition of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. James Eugenio, welcome once again. How are you? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine, except I'm not the co-author of Destiny Betrayed. I'm the only author. I apologize. I apologize. Of Destiny Betrayed. I apologize. Okay. You were, you were co-author of the, uh, the assassinations. Assassination. Yes, thank you. You just you got so much going on, James. It's hard to keep track. You're a busy yeah, man. I, I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a compliment. Uh, right. Okay, so I, I wanted to pick it up um, tonight and and concentrate now on on Oswald. And um, I think before though we 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 talk about New Orleans, nor New Orleans and his time spent there. I mean, he was born there, of course, but he returned there. I guess about the spring of 1963. Uh, let's just give uh, uh, people a sense of of who he was, uh, where he came from, and, and so forth, if we could. And as I mentioned, born in New Orleans. Um, but w can we pick it up maybe when, when he, uh, when he um, signs on uh, in the military and, and I guess does his basic training in San Diego and, and so forth? All right. Um, Oswald is, um, he's in Dallas when he goes ahead and he... Um, kind of sneaks into um, the Marine Corps, okay? And um, now, but right at the, right at the start, let, let me add something. If you've read my book, and you, you, you sounds like you certainly have. Yes, yes. All right. What's really odd about this is that at around the same time that he's going to the Marine Corps, he tries to sell a classmate named Richard Garrett 
on the philosophy of communism, for which Richard reported Oswald to the principal. The second interesting point is that on October 3rd, Oswald wrote a letter to the Socialist Party of America, and he said he was very interested in our youth league and like information on a branch in his region so he could join. And he signed a letter with, I'm a Marxist, I've been studying socialist principles for well over 15 months. I'm very interested in your organization. Now, what is so odd about this is that guys joining the Marine Corps usually aren't Marxists. Okay? Especially at the <laughs> height of the Cold War. Socialist <laughs> organizations. They don't try and sell their classmates on communism. All right? Because, of course, the Marine Corps is usually considered the, uh, the shock troops of any kind of attack that the United States military makes on another country. All right? Sure. They're usually the first to go into action. So here we have this very hard-to-believe spectacle of this young man, right, um, going into the Marine Corps and writing letters to the Socialist Party of America. All right, now, Oswald does go into the Marine Corps, and as I say in the book, he essentially is, um, in the time in the Marine Corps, he's in three places. He's in the southeast quadrant of the United States, okay, um, in places like Mississippi and Florida. He's also stationed in California, and another place is the Far East. Now, in, when he's in the southeast quadrant, what he's doing is getting uh, training for his specialty, which is going to be uh, radar operation, all right? Um, but then he gets stationed in El Toro, California, and this is a step for him to go to Atsuki, right. Japan. Right. Now, what's so odd about Atsuki is that it's a CIA station. All right. And out of Atsugi flew the U-2, which had just become operational. Right, right. Which, of course, was the high-altitude spy plane that the United States invested so much money in and in which it was supposed to get... Um, unbelievably clear pictures from 30,000 feet up, you know, with these terrific polar ray lenses. And so fast, it you couldn't send interceptors. For time. You couldn't intercept yeah. it. It was too fast. What? And you couldn't send up a fighter to intercept it because it was flying at such a high no, altitude and too fast. not at the time they first went up. Right. No, no. And so, now, what's also odd is that Oswald seems to follow the U-2 around, Okay in the Far East, all right? Wherever the, U, wherever the U-2 goes, all right, that Oswald and his detail goes. He was, it was called Attachment D. And um, in the declassified files of the ARB, this curious fact was finally um, divulged, which I think is, excuse me, Detachment C, a special technical unit that seems to be part of the U-2 program, all right? All right, now... Another interesting point is that once Oswald goes into the service, it really does not seem that he's being groomed for the infantry because, as many authors have revealed, including uh, myself, Oswald was not, well, to put it kindly, he was not a very good shot. And, in fact, he was kind of a joke when he went through basic training, all right? Uh, the people kind of made fun of his terrible uh, 
shooting ability. All right. Now, after he returns from the Far East, he comes back to Santa Ana. He takes part in a radar operation squadron nine. But now something very, very odd begins to happen. And to me, and I think to most people, it's not explainable. He begins to start studying the Russian language. All right? Right. He subscribes to Pravda, you know, the big kind of New York Times of Russia at the time. You know, he starts to play Russian records. And this gets to be, you know, so bizarre that his his mates start calling him Oswaldovich, you know? <laughs> you know? And now, as other people observed later, he actually takes a Russian test. Okay? Now, as the Warren, as Jim Garrison so notably noted, you know, the Warren Commission tried to excuse this as saying that he only got half the questions right. You know, which, as Garrison said, kind of begs the question that uh, most people wouldn't have got any questions right. Right, right. right. You know, but later on, later on, about 10 months later, he was, he met a woman named Rosalind Quinn, who was actually being tutored in Russian, because she was actually going to join the State Department. And one of his friends in the Marines set up this meeting so they could go ahead and practice their Russian with each other. Well, Rosalind Quinn, after the meeting, said, that guy speaks as well in Russian as I do, and I was privately tutored for a year. Oh, my. Listen, James, we'll take a time out, we'll come back, and we'll continue to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case by James D. Eugenio right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. James Eugenio is with us. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, part two of our ongoing series, JFK uh, Connecting the Dots. Tonight we're uh, uh, examining the life of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, uh, you were talking about his incredible proficiency with the Russian language, but let me just back up for a second and ask you this, because, you know, if you look at his military record, uh, you know, before he he lands in uh, at Atsugi, which you've pointed out is a CIA base, um, he's got. Uh, you know, he ends up shooting himself in the arm. Um, uh, at one point, I believe he has a some sort of a breakdown. Um, he assaults supposedly he assaults a superior. He's sentenced to the brig. I'm I'm, I'm wondering um, uh, whether these were sort of cover stories, and and to what extent? I mean. What kind of a security clearance did Oswald have when he was uh, attached to the first Marine aircraft wing? Well, that's, that's been under a long time of debate, okay, because the CIA has never wanted to admit that Oswald had a secret clearance, all right? But over time, it's kind of been, you know, this has been chipped away at, 
and certain people who worked with Oswald, okay, like his commanding officer Donovan in the radar thing said he did have a clearance, okay? You know, he did have a clearance to look at some of these top-secret documents, and most people now believe that this was information on the U-2, okay, which is very interesting because when we get to Russia, we'll see why it's so interesting, all right? When we get to Oswald's defection to Russia, we'll see why that's interesting, all right? Well, were they were they trying to... to I mean, again, going back to the uh, these run-ins he had, you know, assaulting his officer, uh, a superior officer. Well, it wasn't really an assault. He, I think, he poured a drink on the guy, right? Okay, but then there was, in, then, then I believe when he, when he was stationed in the Philippines for a short while, he had a, supposedly a complete, you know, breakdown and was sent back to Japan. Were these cover stories, or was was Oswald troubled? Well, there does seem to be a kind of mystery about where Oswald was for a certain period of time because I've personally met someone who went to Santa Ana to do training in firearms. And when he went there, he said, why don't you go ahead and sleep here tonight? This is this Oswald guy who never seems to be here. Okay? And... What many people believe is that these disappearances of Oswald were essentially kind of excuses for him to go ahead and get his training in the Russian language. Because when the Warren Commission convenes, they discover that they had a document that said Oswald had been at the Monterey School of Languages, which is... um, in the middle of California, right, and is the the place to go in the military if you want to acquire mastery of another language. Because, look, anybody who knows anything about languages knows that, A, Russian is one of the most difficult languages there is to learn, all right? And number two, you can't really do it as fast as Oswald did it with just reading newspapers and listening to records. You have to have directed instruction to do it. So this is what many people believe was where, when Oswald was not around, this is where he most likely was acquiring this Russian language. And of course, they've right. already created the cover story of why you know, he's going to defect because at a very early, you know, uh, years earlier, he's already talking about you know, uh, being a Marxist and, and uh, right. embracing socialism. So, I mean, obviously, that was, that was set up years in advance. Well, yeah, see, if, um, you wanted to start at the action when he goes in the Marine Corps. In my book, I try and explain that, in my opinion, the way that this started was with, through his association with David Ferry in the Civil Air Patrol in 1955. That far Ferry back. Ferry had already yeah. indoctrinated several of his cap cadets into the military. And I, this is what I think he did with Oswald. All right? Okay, so let's... Right, so now let's begin to wind this down because there's two very interesting events that not too many people had written about, Okay. Um, and I think they're very important as Oswald now begins to decide to leave the Marine Corps and go to the Soviet Union. Number one is his application 
for the Albert, the so-called Albert Schweitzer College in Switzerland. Yeah, right. Which is, if you remember from the book, this is a very inexplicable interlude that no one has ever really explored until we had this documentation declassified by the ARB. All right, because when after Kennedy's assassination. When the Warren Commission and the FBI tried to find Albert Schweitzer College, which Oswald had sent away, you know, uh, for information from, and after he dis- after Oswald went to Russia, his mother also wrote a letter to Hoover saying, "I haven't heard from my son in weeks. The last time I- he wrote me, he said he was going to go to this college, Albert Schweitzer College." Well. How obscure was Albert Schweitzer College? First of all, the FBI didn't know where it was. Okay. Second of all, the FBI attachment in France didn't know where it was. Hmm. So then they had to refer it to the Swiss police, and guess what? They didn't know where it was, (laughs) even though it was in Switzerland. Right, right. Okay? It took them something like seven days to find Albert Schweitzer College. But yet, that leaves the question, how the heck did Oswald know about it in California? Exactly, exactly. You know, how on earth did he know about this college? Which, by the way, he never went to. Now, I go into the book about some very, very interesting stuff about Albert Schweitzer College because it very much resembles, if you read this, if you read what I wrote about it, it very much resembles some kind of CIA cover operation, because it doesn't come off to anybody who reads about it as a legitimate college. Plus, it shut down after Kennedy's assassination. Interesting. Yes, yes. All right. Now, the other thing is Oswald's early leave from the Marine Corps. Oswald only had, I think, about something like eight months to go before his enlistment period was up. But he mysteriously takes a hardship discharge. Yeah, his mother was injured, supposedly. His mother was injured. (laughs) Well, do you you remember what the injury was? Uh, No, I can't... um, A a candy jar dropped on her foot. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wait a second. I think it might have been her nose. I I, I should get this right. I think it might have been her nose. All right, and so therefore, this event went ahead and ticked off a series of applications to the Red Cross in which Oswald went ahead and was dismissed early from the Marine Corps. The House Select Committee on Assassinations did some research on previous hardship discharges. You know, because you had to have an application, it had to be reviewed by a board. Etc. They had to make sure you just weren't making something up because you just wanted to get out of the Marine Corps. Yeah, he got his in like two weeks. He got, the average length of time it took to get a hardship discharge was three to six months. Yeah. Okay. Well, Oswald's took 11 days. That's right. August, Oswald's took yeah. 11 days. August 17th, 59. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right? So he now gets out early. All right. And what does he do? Does he go back and tend his mother? Well, 
he was only back in Fort Worth or something like at his mom's for like a day and a half. Okay, he actually took one day off to visit his mother, but his brother, who did not was not living with his mother. All right, so clearly it seems to most people that this hardship discharge was designed to get Oswald out of the service early because he was never meant to be an infantry guy. He was always meant to be part of what, as we're going to see, this fake defector program. Yeah, he gets okay. out and immediately applies for a passport, and he's he, and he now he's busying himself so that he can get over to Russia. Right. And so he goes ahead, he goes down to New Orleans, all right? He then gets on this ship called the Marion Likes, all right, uh, a freighter. He goes over to um, Southampton, okay, in England, all right? And from there, he, went, he goes ahead to Helsinki. Now, if you remember what I wrote in the book, there's a really interesting thing that happens, well, there's more than one, that happens to him in Helsinki, Finland. All right? Here's this guy who's supposed to have something like $203 in his bank account. Yeah, he moves to the Klaus Kirky Hotel. <laughs> he got $203 in his bank account. And where did he check into? He checks into first the Hotel Tony. Right, right. Which I, I know a guy who's been there. Yeah, it's pretty this Tony. Is the kind of hotel that if Donald Trump was going to Helsinki, he would stay there. Yeah. It's like a five star hotel. It shouldn't be the Tony, it should be the Tony Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Savoy in London. All right? So here's this impoverished Marine going into this five star hotel with granite floors, glass walls, an observation tower. It used to have its own newspaper. All right? Now, somebody must have told them, uh, Lee, uh, let's, uh, let's cover this up a little bit. Why don't you get out of that place? So what does he do? He goes to the, the Klaus Kirky Hotel, which is about three blocks away, which if not quite a five-star, is probably a four-star. Yeah, still pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here's the question. Here's a guy who should be staying at the Express Holiday Inn, and he's, he's staying at the two best hotels in Helsinki. All right? Why? How? All right? So then he gets a visa into the Soviet Union in something like a couple of days. All right? And now he's finally into Russia, which is where it looks like he's always wanted to be. Okay, and there's been a series, as I describe in the book, there's been a series of American so-called defectors who very oddly had gone, there hadn't been any in something like 15 years. Well, at the time Oswald goes over, he's like the third or fourth in like the last 18 months. Okay, so clearly what's happening is that the United States is sending over, you know, these men who have been from the military who've been trained to act as disaffected people, you know, and then go to Russia as undercover spies. All right. Now, the Russians, of course, don't believe this. You know, they don't believe that Oswald is a, is a true communist. And I explained in the book, there was all kinds of surveillance on Oswald, you know, both human intelligence and uh, electronic surveillance, you know, and also from some of his speeches that he gave, you know, and even... The, the diplomat at the, at the American embassy, Richard Snyder, 
is obviously knows that Oswald is not a real defector because he makes sure that he doesn't sign a certain document so that he will not lose his American citizenship. All right? So Oswald then is stored up at this Metropole Hotel, and it takes the KGB a few days to figure out what they're going to do with him. And they send him to Minsk, about 400 miles, I think, eastward, no, westward of Moscow. And he works in this radio factory. All right? And he meets some people there. The KGB guy in Minsk has a human net around him, okay, because they strongly suspect he's some kind of intelligence agent. All right? And they also have electronic surveillance on him because he actually, if you remember the story in the book, his friend Ernst Titovitz says they fished out some kind of recording device out of his sink one day. Right, right. All right? He then meets Marina Oswald. Okay? He then meets Marina Oswald at this dance. And Marina Oswald, unbelievably, had also met Webster, who was another defector. Okay? In Russia. Okay, let's just uh, let me jump in there, James. Let me just jump. Let me jump in. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue with Oswald uh, in Russia as we discuss JFK, destiny betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison case. James D. Eugenio, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Who are you scared of, Dave? Me. Everybody. Agency, mob, Cubans. That's it. Follow the Cubans. Check them out. Here, Miami, Dallas. Check out a guy named Eladio Del Valle. He used to be my paymaster when I flew missions into Cuba. Somewhere in Miami, you're on the right track. Hey, hey, don't be writing this down. I ain't cooperating here with no one. What's going on here? There's a death warrant for me. Don't you get it? Damn. Wait a minute. You ain't you ain't bugged, are you? You ain't some bitch loop. Are you? Dave, I always no play bugs. square, no bugs. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Part two of our JFK Connecting the Dots with James Eugenio. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. We were talking about Oswald in Russia, and of course he wasn't uh, the only uh, uh, def- American defector, so-called, over there with CIA connections. You mentioned Robert E. Webster, who uh, was working over there, supposedly setting up some sort of a trade display for Rand Corporation, which kind of right. has an, an interesting connection with the CIA. Both of the, I think, the, the, the CEO of Rand uh, they served in the OSS, which was the forerunner of the CIA. right. right. And uh, so uh, Oswald uh, and Webster knew each other. uh, Marina had met... uh, Well, Oswald and Webster knew of each other. Ah, okay. I don't think they actually knew each other. But but, but Marina Marina had met, yeah. actually knew both of them. But the thing is... And she she confused them, by the way, Ah. when she left. She confused them. She said she met Oswald at some science fair, which is... That's where she met Webster. Right, right. Okay. Now, when, but now, it's the interesting thing about Webster... Russia, and we're getting ready to do that now. Yeah, yes. There's one thing we can't ignore. When Oswald went to the Soviet Union, the information comes back to the FBI, comes back to the United States Navy, and is filed very cleanly and logically, almost 
within 24 hours of them getting the information. But when it comes to the CIA, it goes into what John Newman, a military intelligence analyst, has written, is a black hole. For about 30 days, this information about Oswald is lost at the CIA. There's no tracing on where it's going or why. Then when it finally does get filed, okay, it gets filed in the wrong place, the Office of Security, all right, which is one of the James Angleton's domains, the counterintelligence chief, all right. And also, if you can believe it, something even to me even more startling happens. The CIA does not open up a 201 file on Oswald. Now, what does that mean? The 201 file is the most common file the CIA has on almost, well, not almost everybody, but most of the people that opens up files, they open up a 201 file, which is just an, an information file on people who might be of interest to them. Here you have a defector leaving the Marine Corps early, saying he's going to Albert Schweitzer College, which he doesn't go to, all right, then going to Helsinki, staying at this Hotel Tourney, staying at the Kirky, and then crossing over into Russia. And this is not important enough for the CIA to open up a 201 file. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. But he does make the mail intercept program. In other words, the CIA goes ahead and starts breaking into his mail. Now, the 201 files are in tens of thousands of people. The mail intercept program was only something like 300 people. So why is Oswald not important enough to get a 201 file? But he is important enough to get his mail intercepted. See, this is something the CIA has never explained. All right, so then Oswald then, he and Marina marry in, I think, something like, talk about a whirlwind romance. I think it, the whole thing took about five weeks from when they first met, all right? And then Oswald is granted permission to leave Russia with this Soviet national who has ties to the Communist Party and whose uncle, who was acting more or less as a stepfather, is part of the equivalent of the Soviet Union's FBI. Again, very, very odd. Because when the Warren Commission was investigating this, they said this was very, very unusual. It sometimes took a year for a Soviet, a Soviet national to meet their spouse outside the country, okay, to get, to get through customs, all right? But here it happened in just a matter of months. You know? Yeah, there's definitely a, 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 a pattern here with Oswald. Uh, right. let me, let me he's a very unusual person. Then he comes back to the United States. The CIA always denied that they debriefed him, but now we have some pretty good evidence that he was probably debriefed in Amsterdam on the way back. All right. And then, he, of course, he comes back to Texas, and who does he hook up with? This is the beginning of a very strange relationship between the supposed impoverished former Marine and his wife and the cosmopolitan, highfalutin, very cultured oil geologist 
named George DeMorne Show. Okay, well, I got to cut in here. We'll take a time out when we come back. We'll uh, we'll talk about that. But I also want to just touch briefly on what happened in May of 1960, uh, and uh, the U2 being uh, uh, shot down, and if there's a connection there as well. Back with James DiEugenio as we discuss JFK here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. This is part two of our uh, series on JFK Connecting the Dots. Part two of how many? I don't know. As many as it takes, really, uh, because the information in Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison case, much of it not heard anywhere else, uh, not to be seen anywhere else. And uh, James DiEugenio has done a wonderful job uh, compiling this. And uh, tonight we're focusing on Oswald, and we'll probably uh, do several more episodes uh, focusing on Oswald. But let, let me just back up. Before he defects and is in, or, or comes back, to, rather, to the United States, and he's in Russia, in May of 1960, of course, the U-2, a flight which is piloted by Francis Gary Powers, is shot down. Over, the, over Russia, uh, and it's interesting because, of course, that coincides with the time when Oswald was there, and as you had pointed out earlier, uh, he was, uh, you know, moving around in his, in, during his career with the Marines, sort of seemingly following the U-2. Uh, so what is the connection then, James, between Francis Gary Powers being shot down in the U-2 in Russia while Oswald is there? Well, Powers actually thought that Oswald was part of him being shot down. Because when Oswald came over, he said, and he said this to the American embassy, which, of course, the Soviets had, had surveillance listening devices in, that I have some very secret information that I would like to convey. Now, the only secret information Oswald had, of course, was about the U-2. The only thing that could be of value to the Soviet Union. So many people thought that he was dangling this information for the Russians to take him up on. All right? But there's no real evidence that he actually did this. But when Donovan, his commanding officer, testified before the Warren Commission, when he came out, he said, I wanted to start telling them about what Oswald knew about the U-2, but they never asked me any questions. And this is really one of the most puzzling things about this whole, because there isn't any evidence that the CIA at the time did what they call a damage control assessment after the U-2 was shot down. In other words, how did the Russians shoot it down? Did Oswald give them the information? There was nothing like that done. There was only a very mild kind of investigation at the time of the Warren Commission, which most of Oswald's buddies thought was a kind of CYA operation. In other words, talk to a couple of people and just say, well, see, we did investigate it, whether or not it could have been Oswald. And, of course, right. the result of that, the, the embarrassment, of course, when, when Eisenhower had to admit it was a spy, a U.S. spy plane, was it scuttled uh, a meeting, a summit meeting, between Eisenhower and Khrushchev, which could have led to some uh, easing or, or thawing in the Cold War. Yeah, see, there's no doubt about that, because... Um, there's a big debate about whether or not there was supposed to be a hiatus about U-2 flights. 
when Eisenhower was leading up to this big summit meeting in Paris, because Eisenhower really did have some strong ambitions to get something accomplished at this summit meeting, all right? Well, needless to say, when the news comes in that the U-2 shot down, this more or less scuttles the summit meeting. Khrushchev has a lot of leverage now over an Eisenhower, and he wants Eisenhower to make an announcement about who authorized this U-2 shoot-down and why. You know, like, like well, it's not the shoot-down, but the actual flight. You know, and why did they do it? Well, Eisenhower wasn't going to do that. So Khrushchev got all huffy and puffy, and he left. All right? And leaves Eisenhower high and dry. Now, some people believe that it might have been this incident that caused Eisenhower to make his famous military-industrial complex speech. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about, right? Of course. I mean, we play it on the show all the time. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a me- if I'm you know General Electric or or one of these defense contractors, I'm clapping furiously now that that the Cold War summit has been called off because that's not going to be good for business. Right. Right. And so a lot of people believe that it might have been this incident that caused him to make that speech. Okay, warning about the impending might of the military-industrial state, okay? And it's a very, very interesting theory. Let's put it this way. I think it's a very... And one of the most intriguing things that there is to know about Oswald, you know, as he's about to leave the Soviet Union. So is it possible then, James, uh, that that was the reason, that was the sole reason that Oswald was first set up to look like a, uh, a, a socialist, a communist, a Marxist, whatever you want to call him. Uh, and that was the reason that his defection to Russia, that the, the path seemed to be cleared to get him over there, to learn Russian. Uh, he's, he's equipped with all this knowledge, secret knowledge about the U-2. That was the raison d'etre for getting him into the, into the Soviet Union. Well, it, it might have been a very important part of it because another important part of this story is that the U-2 was beginning to be phased out at the time Oswald leaves the Soviet Union. They were already planning on a much faster plane, the SR-71. It was actually on the books, right? So they might have thought about it this way. Well, let's go ahead and give the secret away because we've got this other plane coming in and we'll have a chance to scuttle Eisenhower's you know, dream of detente, of establishing detente, okay, in the 60s. So that's, so it's a possibility, you know. See, Oswald is such a complex character, you know, that it's very hard to figure out definitively who the guy is and why he's doing these things. And by the way, we haven't even gotten to New Orleans yet. No, no. We I mean, the kind of the stuff the guy does there is, you know, I mean, I mean, talk about bizarre. That's that's going to be part three. We, uh, but I oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna delay that to part three. Okay. Absolutely, yes. We'll uh, okay. listen. We're gonna we're gonna uh, take this we're series. We're gonna talk about George Mornschild. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Mornschild, De uh, Mornschild, and uh, now, yeah, he, as you say, here is this very wealthy uh, oil guy uh, who suddenly befriends Marina and and um, Oswald and introduces them to members of the Russian community. But why? What they had nothing in common. Right. It's one of the more puzzling relationships that, um, if you study Oswald's life, it's really kind of not explainable. Because the Morinchild's family comes from Russia. They had very strong interests 
in the Nobel oil fields, okay, in in Russia, all right? And he was part of the white Russian community. Yeah, they which they wanted to they overthrow the communist dictatorship, of course, and bring back the czar. Yeah. So what the heck is he doing, associating with this supposed communist? You know. Well, no, well, now later on, before he died, Demorenschild revealed that left to his own devices, he would have never befriended Oswald. You know, he was told to uh, meet Oswald through his CIA uh, liaison in Dallas, a guy named J. Walton Moore. All right, and he, they they become rather close friends. For several months, they talk, they eat, they spend time with each other's families. Uh, uh, Shield introduces him to the rest of the white Russian community, who they become, he becomes quite close with. And ultimately, what I believe Shield's mission was, he introduces them to Ruth and Michael Payne. And then as Shield begins to leave in the spring of 1963... Ruth and Michael Payne essentially fill the vacuum, and they become the best friends of Lee and Marina Oswald. And these are uh, uh, Michael Payne is an executive with Bell Helicopter. Right. He's he's uh, he has a, a very high security clearance at Bell Helicopter in Dallas Fort Worth, which leaves the question: What was he doing with the wife of a communist staying in his house? Okay, <laughs> which is what's going to happen, right? And okay, and, and, when, and who's Michael Payne's boss? Comes this... back from New Orleans. Ruth Payne has her living with them in their house, and this guy's got a top security clearance at Bell Helicopter with the wife of a communist. You know, you know, and the, and the communist actually staying there on weekends. And last week we started we started the show talking about how the OSS recruited some top Nazis. Uh, you know, we talked about Reinhard Galen, but another one comes over and ends up running Bell Helicopter and is, I guess, Michael Payne's boss, right? Walter Dornberger. Yeah. Right. That's Operation Paperclip. Okay. Yeah. And Dornberger is a big wheel at Bell Helicopter. At, 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 by the way, at, at around this time, you know. So it's, it's very, very interesting, these associations, when you begin to examine them. And in... When we talk about Ruth and Michael Payne, we will see that they go way back in time and space to the Boston Brahmin families, who essentially founded this country. Yeah, the Blue Bloods of America. Right, the Cabots and the Forbes family. You know, from you know, that go way. You're talking three centuries. Right. Right. Okay. And this was covered up so beautifully by the Warren Commission, that who Ruth and Michael Payne really were that it's, it was masterful how they did it. You would never get it from just looking in the Warren Report. You had to do some really serious research. I mean, at the time of the assassination, Michael Payne is on a trust fund from the Cabot family, okay? Mm. That's, he's living largely off two trust funds from the Cabot and the Forbes family. We're talking about the unelected oligarchs uh, who, who run America. Right. Listen, right. we're going to... I mean, these people actually looked down on the Kennedys because the Kennedys were like nouveau rich. Right. Okay, whereas they had their money from way, way back, you know, two, three hundred years ago, you know, and they controlled, they were in 
on all of these, you know, they worked for the State Department, they were in the Council on Foreign Relations, you know, and they, they really essentially, you know, kind of were behind the scenes power of running America. They were the okay. industrial, the military industrial complex. Right. And Michael and Ruth Payne, if you read my book, and this is one of the parts of the book that I'm very proud of, were disguised as these, this Quaker Good Samaritan couple. But as we begin to explore what they're doing, they really appear to be extensions of this eastern establishment in Texas. And that's what they appear to be doing there. All right? Which, which is interesting as well, because the Bush family, and we'll get into this uh, as, as this series unfolds, the Bush family, eastern establishment, transplanted right. in Texas as well. Right. You can, you can say that that's another example of this. Yeah. Listen, we're going you know, to leave it... From back east... You know, then, you know, they go to Texas, and George H.W. Bush becomes a big wheel in dresser industries. Okay, we're going to leave it there, uh, uh, James, and we'll reconvene maybe in a month, and we'll pick it up with part three, and we'll just keep going. We'll keep going. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. James, thank you for this. Talk soon. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. The Conspiracy Show, and you can follow... This program through the website as well, www.richardserrett.com. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good to have you aboard. Have a very interesting hour ahead of us for you. It's been a while since I've had this gentleman on. The last time he was with us, we were talking about how the fix is in in professional sports, but he's back with a, a brand new investigative uh, a piece some three years in the making uncovered some very very interesting official government documents it's all about the continuity of government and martial law and we'll get to that discussion in just a moment um, 
let me. Um, I'm about to tell you something, and I, and I, I forgive me. I'm, I have to be vague for now, uh, but I will get into this. I, I have tweeted about this for those of you who uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Richard Serrett. The mighty Aphrodite, of course, my uh, my bride, um, is going through a very difficult time right now. And as a result, well, the whole family is. We are, or she has specifically been uh, targeted uh, for an, an attack, really. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. Unwarranted, unfounded, um, and uh, it demonstrates what uh, the abuse of power, when, when, when someone in a position of power abuses that power. Uh, she's been on the receiving end of, of several poisonous emails and a harassing phone call, a threatening phone call, uh, in which the individual, whose name will become known over the, uh, the next uh, days and weeks, uh, because we are taking this to the media, this individual uh, threatened to uh, basically sick Revenue Canada on her uh, the reason why is still remains a complete mystery, I guess because this individual feels he has the power to do so. I will tell you that he, this individual is a, uh, a federal politician in the greater Toronto area. Uh, and the mighty Aphrodite for the last several days has not been able to sleep. She's physically ill over this, and we are taking the story to the media. Uh, and if you want to know more, you can, uh, you can check out... Uh, uh, my Twitter, Richard Serrett. There's a few references there. That's all I'm going to say now. I will keep you posted. But we just feel, I don't know, uh, some people have suggested that perhaps we are being, uh, we're under some sort of spiritual attack. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's all very puzzling and very disturbing, but um, uh, we're not going to take it uh, lying down, that's for sure. We will we will exhaust every avenue to make sure this person is held to account for this uh, irresponsible behavior. Uh, an abuse of power. It cannot be allowed to stand because if it can happen to us, it can happen to anyone. Uh, imagine having uh, you know, Canada Revenue on your uh, Revenue Canada on your back for absolutely no reason, even if you have absolutely nothing to hide, which of course she does not. The fact is, it's it's hanging over her head like you know the sword of Damocles, and um, uh, it's very easy for this person uh, to to make a call and and uh, say, why don't you investigate them uh, to Revenue Canada? And then when he's has to explain. He says, well, if they investigate and they find nothing, oh, well, I suppose I could apologize. Not good enough. All right, enough said. But there will be more details uh, forthcoming, I promise you. I mentioned uh, Brian Tui, uh, who was last on this program talking about the corruption in professional sports. And I remember at the time, it just caused a, a real firestorm when that book came out, and uh, I, I received... Tons of emails. And uh, Brian promised that he would be back with a brand new book, and here we are three years later. This time, he's discussing the continuity of government and how it's uh, affecting, or how it could affect you. Disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you is the name of the book. And uh, Brian Tui is the author as I say, he was best known as the author of The Fix Is In, The Showbiz Manipulation of the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, and NASCAR, which was published by Feral House. This guy takes no prisoners, and it's a pleasure to have Brian back on The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Fine. How are you doing this evening, Richard? It's good to have you here. Thank you. First of all, uh, a little primer. What does continuity of government mean? We've heard that term. 
uh, but many people aren't maybe familiar with what it actually means. Continuity of government is, in essence, the plans the government has created in order to save itself, to preserve the operation of the federal government. And the idea being that if you save the federal government from whatever may be a natural disaster, a nuclear war, worst-case scenario type of stuff, that if you save the federal government, them being protected will in turn preserve the United States and then help all of the citizens survive whatever disaster is at hand. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's logical. Uh, we In Canada, during the Cold War, uh, the, uh, the federal government, they built a bunch of nuclear bunkers across the country. They were nicknamed Diefen Bunkers. At the time, the prime minister was uh, John Diefen Baker. Uh, so, um, I, I think England, of course, uh, maybe was one of the first. They did this during the uh, the Blitz, during the Second World War, to counter the threat of the Luftwaffe bombing, uh, you know, the, the government. So, I mean, these these are things that governments should do, if I suppose, if they're carried out responsibly, right? Would you agree? Oh, exactly. I mean, it, it's common sense. I mean, like you said, I mean, everybody should have a disaster plan. I mean, you should have an emergency plan for your own home. If you own a business, you should have an emergency plan for that. And, you know, a logical step is, you know, the government should have such a plan as well. I think where the problem lies and where the conspiracy theories start and where people start, you know, losing it over the subject matter is I think the nature of continuity government is intended in the United States to preserve the constitutional form of government, like the pure government that we all, I think, as Americans want to believe in. But the problem is, as you see how our government operates today, and you think, well, continuity government is going to save those crazy people. <laughs> right. Not is right. this something we want to preserve? Exactly. Well, the yeah. continuity of operations plan, the one that exists now, as I understand it, this was activated in the U.S. following the September 11th attacks. Well, to a certain extent it was. And I put that in the book is kind of what was revealed during that day. The scary part is, is uh, this has been basically ongoing since after World War II, and America did seem to get the idea, of, like you said, from the British, and it really ramped up during the Cold War. And they spent, you know, billions upon billions of dollars, you know, creating these underground relocation sites and making these, you know, plans. And then 9-11 happened, and one of my favorite stories is when 9-11 was ongoing, Laura Bush's um, chief of staff organized everyone working in the White House, and despite all these plans and everything, literally told the White House staff, run for your lives. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we spent all this money. and Run for your lives. The answer is run for your lives. Well, there's money well spent. Exactly. So uh, what, what led you to, to begin this uh, three-year investigation? What was the red flag for you? There wasn't really a... Red flag, it kind of, you know, because I do this research on sports, and I haven't stopped doing that. I have another sports book coming out about game fixing and sports gambling later this year, actually. But I kind of could only handle so much sports. <laughs> and what happened was is I was always interested in this kind of continuity government stuff, and I was interested kind of from that conspiracy theory angle. And I said, all right, I'm going to look into this kind of as a side project, something to take my mind off of sports. And so... I could talk about something else besides sports. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that, you know, it wasn't crazy. The stuff was actually true. And then once I started getting the actual documents from the FBI and some of these other places, stuff that was once top secret, 
and saw really what was going on, I was like, okay, I have to do something with this information and I have to put it out there because I can't find a book about this information as thorough as what I hope disaster government is for readers. Well, you, uh, you know, Brian, you can't do a, a conspiracy program like I have, uh, f- I guess going on 13 years, without hearing these stories about, uh, uh, you know, FEMA camps, these, uh, the, uh, ba- basically these, you know, uh, holding centers that are being prepared for U.S. dissidents in case of some sort of uh, civil unrest or economic meltdown. Uh, uh, the U.S. ordering, you know, uh, tens of thousands of coffins in case of some, again, uh, national emergency, um, civil, civil unrest. W- were you uncovering evidence of these sorts of things? To a certain extent. Um, the FEMA camp thing, is, it's kind of almost like kind of a new government. It, it makes sense on one level, and on another level it doesn't. I mean, if you read the actual bill... The idea was pretty sound. I mean, when we saw what happened with Hurricane Katrina and how it displaced literally a million or more people in the Gulf Coast, they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to stay, you know, with all the damage that was done. And, you know, so the government's response, FEMA's response was so haphazard. They were giving them gift cards and putting them into, you know, trailers that wound up having formaldehyde levels that were like five times the legal limit, or they were putting people in hotels. Somebody said, okay, well, maybe we should make some sort of kind of like hotels for these people to go to when a disaster like this happens. And to a certain extent, that makes sense. But then the vagueness of the bill that was proposed and the vagueness in a lot of this stuff allows for other things to be possible. And that's where the conspiracy thing comes in. Because they're not defined clearly, you could say, well, if you wanted to round up dissenters. And part of the thing I do talk about in the book is the fact is there is such a program in place to round up dissenters, and it's been one for many years, then you start putting two and two together and wondering, well, what's really going on? Brian Tui is with us, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You. Uh, Now, one of the things you talk about is in, in the event of nuclear war or some other national emergency, but it doesn't necessarily need to be anything so catastrophic. Uh, because, again, these plans are so vague, and, and the power rests in the executive branch. Is that correct? Totally, and that's, that's the troublesome thing is it's not – Congress has basically given all this power to the president. And the funny part is, is a lot of it's – they refer to it in the documents as saying they want to preserve um, enduring constitutional freedom. But the fact is, the irony is, is that to do that, they're giving all the power to the president, which is completely – unconstitutional. Right. So he could va- basically, he or she, depending on who is in the White House, they, they would basically rule by edict, uh, like yeah. a Caesar. Exactly. Now, um, the, the vagueness, uh, again, going back to what kind of a national emergency, you're saying the vagueness of this uh, continuity uh, plan wouldn't necessarily require a true national emergency. Give me some examples, some, some of the things that could happen that, that, uh, that could be interpreted by the wrong president, as you point out, uh, that could, that could uh, you know, basically kickstart this continuity program. Well, the problem is, is no one's defined what national emergency means, what one is. And you'd be hard-pressed if you ask people. I mean, Right now, the United States of America is under 25 separate ongoing national emergencies. 
And you'd be hard-pressed, I think, as an American citizen to name one. Because you would think of something with the title of a national emergency, you know, emergency means obviously something that's happening right now, and it's, you know, troublesome. (laughs) And, you know, national is nationwide, yet you can't name one of these national emergencies, and we're under 25 of them. And that's that's what really kind of trip me further going down this rabbit well, let's, hole. Well, let's talk about that. When book. we come back, uh, Brian, let's talk about some of these national uh, emergencies that the, uh, the residents of the United States are already living under and may not be aware, and, and uh, what sort of event uh, might trigger uh, essentially martial law, a president announcing uh, a series of measures by edict, by decree, uh, that would end up, you know, suspending civil liberties and, and subjecting people to, uh, who knows, internment in one of these FEMA camps and, and what else this might imply. Brian Tui, again, author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and you, phone lines available to you here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Brian Tui is with us, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You. And I, I suppose, on the one hand, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, uh, resting with the executive branch of the federal government in the United States is the authority to essentially uh, suspend the Constitution and uh, suspend civil liberties in the case of some national emergency, given that we now have uh, an executive branch with the authority to assassinate U.S. citizens, uh, there's a, um, an area that's so vague that some have interpreted it, it to uh, mean that even on U.S. soil, uh, the U.S. Uh, or the president could order the assassination of basically anyone he decides to, uh, anyone that he considers to be a terrorist. Uh, we shouldn't then be surprised that these sorts of things are, are going on. Now, Brian... You mentioned before the break that, that the U.S. is currently living under 25 national emergencies. Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, again, they, no one ever defined what a national emergency was. The closest that any president came was with Ronald Reagan. And during his administration, a lot of times they would call it a national security emergency. And that made a big difference because basically what it was then was anything that threatened national security, therefore, could basically be deemed an emergency and then the government could react to it as it deemed necessary but that got eliminated after the reagan years and it just became a national emergency again and what's a national emergency today is nothing what i think people would think of i mean hurricane katrina was not a national emergency the superstorm or hurricane sandy however you want to call it was not a national emergency but yet the conditions in zimbabwe or the conditions in burma or the conditions in colombia these are all national emergencies right now. 9-11, which basically, as far as I was concerned, ended that day, is still a national emergency today. And how would the situation in, in Burma or Zimbabwe... Uh, well, how is it a national con- emergency, right? Yes, constitute a national emergency. <laughs> well, you should ask President Obama, because I can't figure it out myself. I think what it is, is the Korean War was a national emergency. And because it was declared a national emergency, the situation in Korea, not the war itself, but the situation in Korea, which led to the war, 
was a national emergency. I think what it is is today is it's the same kind of thing. Making Iran a national emergency basically allows the government, if it wants to, basically send in the troops and, you know, send in the drones and all that sort of thing and because it threatens potentially our national security. And I think that's what it all boils down to now is it's basically almost like a pretense to war. Could the, the president, uh, under the Continuity of Government Act or, or government uh, plan, uh, essentially um, dissolve the House of Representatives, the Congress, uh, call off uh, elections, suspend elections? In a very real way, it's basically everything is set up for a legal coup. A legal coup. The government. It's like all the dominoes are set up. It's just a matter of tipping them over. Now, the problem would be, for example, with Obama, it'd be really hard, I think, to start those dominoes falling with the conditions in Zimbabwe as your excuse. <laughs> you know, you'd have to have people line up on your side, and I think you'd have a hard time selling that one. But given something else, given another 9-11 type of circumstance, well, then things could completely change. But, I mean, we are sort of seeing this this process unfolding in slow motion. One could call it a coup d'etat in slow motion. We, I mean, they've essentially uh, suspended habeas corpus. Uh, I mentioned the, 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 uh, the president having the authority to assassinate um, U.S. citizens. So there goes... Uh, I believe that's the fifth, is that the Fifth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment? Sorry, the Fourth Amendment. Yep. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, due process out the window. Uh, illegal search and seizure. Uh, we had, up until recently, I believe, the FBI writing their, FBI agents could write their own warrants, enter into somebody's house, uh, and if the the person under investigation spoke to anybody about it, they could be thrown in jail. I mean, it sounds like it's already happening. Yeah, it's a little frightening, <laughs> I admit. Yeah, it's, uh, being American, so it doesn't make you feel too good. One of the things I dug up with this book was um, they, there used to be an emergency detention act and an emergency detention plan, and this dated back to the 60s, and I got the FBI files that proved this is not a make-believe thing. It's real. And what the FBI had an issue with was not the fact that there was basically 100,000 Americans back in the 60s under the government's constant surveillance, and that given a national emergency, the FBI was tasked with rounding up about 15,000 of those people and arresting them, no matter what they were doing, if they were breaking the law or not, or just sitting in their house. They were basically deemed dissenters and potential troublemakers and needed to be arrested. The FBI's problem with the whole thing wasn't that this existed, but how they were going to actually round up 15,000 people at the drop of a hat. That was their concern. None of the other stuff was a concern. That was the concern, is how right. are we going to do this? Right. And that's increased. I mean, now we have, you know, things like the no-fly list, and I think it's, what is it, the TIDE program that monitors some, like, one and a half million Americans, and there's maybe even a bigger database called Main Corps that potentially monitors eight million Americans who are deemed potential terrorists, and, again, given the right set of circumstances, could be rounded up at the drop of a hat. And, and if you listen to, uh, I believe... Uh, it was a, uh, an official with Homeland Security um, whose name escapes me. It'll come to me. But she talked about, uh, I mean, the list could include, for example, uh, uh, people who, uh, who, who talk about owning gold, you know, not owning fiat currency, but, but uh, you know, forget about buying, uh, getting, uh, storing U.S. dollars, buy gold. That person could be considered 
uh, a terrorist, uh, someone um, who, who, who voted for Ron Paul uh, could be declared uh, a terrorist, um, someone who is, uh, you know, very pro-life or, or pro-gun, whether or not you agree or disagree with that person, they could be considered a terrorist. So does this list still exist? And is it possible, for example, to find out if you're on this list? As far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, it is, does still exist. In fact, you and I are probably on it. <laughs> of that, I have no doubt. <laughs> but, um, you know, to access it, I, I don't think anybody on the outside has a chance to do that. Because it it's one of those things that can be, like, neither confirmed nor denied. You know, and that's the way they want it. And, and that's the problem with a lot of these programs I talk about in the book. You know, you talk about the vagueness of it all. Back when continuity government and, you know, the idea of surviving a nuclear war took, started and really took a foothold was back in the Kennedy administration. And he issued like 19 executive orders directed at all the department heads, basically, and told them to get basically get ready for nuclear war and how to respond to it and, you know, look into how to um, claim certain things, how to stockpile certain things, how to ration certain things, and he was very specific in his orders. And since then, Nixon rewrote it, uh, Reagan rewrote it, and then Obama rewrote it, the same basic plan, but as each other president, successive president rewrote it, it got more and more vague and just kind of more generalized, which gave, obviously, the people in charge way more leeway to do what they think was necessary and that's where it gets kind of, again, scary. Uh, people have a short memory, but this, uh, this uh, past summer, of course, was uh, a horrible drought across, uh, you know, in the breadbasket of America. And, and subsequently, subsequently, you know, uh, there were uh, corn, uh, corn shortages and so forth. So, and we're not going to see that uh, really reflected until this coming, uh, this coming spring, summer. Food prices are uh, expected to, to skyrocket in some areas, and people are already starting to see some hints of that. Um, what happens in the case of, uh, of, of food shortages under this continuity of government uh, a, a plan? Uh, talk to me about you know, their, their, their plan for food rationing and that sort of thing. Well, again, it's all kind of vague now. Now, see, something like that, like the drought, for example, wasn't a national emergency. Again, that was like no concern, even though, again, it's going to affect probably everybody in the country way more than the conditions and, you know, Belarus are going to affect everyone in the country, but that's not considered a national emergency, but Belarus is. But within these continuity government programs, if the president deems it so, they can ration, they can do a lot of things. I mean, they can ration food, water, energy. They can basically confiscate your car and personal vehicle, given the right set of the circumstances. They can take over the airwaves. They can take over your own electromagnetic device, be it a computer, iPod, television, what have you. It, can, it even goes down to, to the fact that they can literally tell Americans where to work, what they're going to work on, and how much they're going to get paid to do it if push comes to shove. People might be sitting back and saying, okay, well, that's, uh, that's all fine and dandy. It's, it's not, I mean, that's a safe, a, you know, sort of the last line of defense. That's not likely to happen unless, of course, there was something like nuclear war. Uh, why, why should we be concerned about it then? I mean, are you concerned that we're close, it's imminent, that something like martial law is going to be declared? Or, I mean, what, what are you afraid of? 
I'm not afraid of anything. I made a point where I, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm old enough for it. I'm like, eh, whatever. But I think it's a very real possibility, and I think people should be concerned about it, especially if they're concerned about the United States and the true constitutional government and how this country is supposed to run. You should be very concerned about these plans. Because, again, they've put literally billions of dollars into them. They've planned them. They've tested them. And they are willing to implement them given the right set of circumstances. And we've seen these circumstances crop up here and there. I mean, people don't think, like, martial law is possible. And to a certain extent, I don't think it could be instituted from coast to coast. You couldn't control everyone with the government or with the military by any means. But you could control the city. And there's been situations where, you know, there's been basically what they call civil disobedience. We saw that a lot in the 1960s and even in the um, with the Rodney King riots were literal, you know, step-by-step procedures that are supposed to be put in place before they send in the troops were met. The president issued a warning in the case of the Rodney King riots that said, if you guys don't disperse, we're sending in the troops. They didn't disperse. They sent in the military and then put, you know, Los Angeles basically under martial law for three days to control it all. So, I mean, everything's in place to do it. They just need the right, you know, kickstart, and they will do these things. Now, there supposedly is a, uh, you know, a law that prevents, I mean, the U.S. military is never supposed to be used against U.S. citizens, a posse comitatus. Has that, as far as you can tell, pretty much been suspended or, or, or thrown under the bus, this, this concept that, have they cleared the way, in other words, for the U.S. military, for U.S. troops to be used against U.S. citizens? Yes and no. There are exceptions to the posse comitatus. And people have to remember, it's not a thing that was given under the Constitution. It was a law passed by Congress in, I think it was 1878, after the Civil War. And there are exceptions. The like uh, Coast Guard doesn't operate under posse comitatus. National Guard does not. They're allowed to police. Um, there's also rules for like fighting on the war on drugs. The Navy and the Air Force are allowed to stop smugglers from trying to breach or get out of our borders. So, I mean, there are ways around it. The big thing, going back to the Rodney King riots, was the main example is the government is allowed to send in the military troops given what they, again, called basic civil disobedience. And the only way the president can do that, however, they have to meet certain um, regulations, basically, step-by-step thing, and that all falls under the Insurrection Act of 1807. And that basically says if the president wants to send in the troops, he has to issue an order that says you people have to cease and desist whatever you're doing. And if they don't cease and desist, then he's allowed to issue an edict that will send the troops in to establish martial law. Do you see a connection um, between these, uh, the federal government attempting to pass uh, additional gun control laws banning assault weapons in some jurisdictions. Some states, we saw recently the state of Washington uh, banning assault-type weapons, although there is, that's not a technical term. There is no real, there's no such thing really as an assault weapon. It's whatever someone decides looks like an assault weapon. But what, do you think there's a connection uh, between these uh, gun anti-gun regulations or, or gun control regulations and this continuity of government plan. In other words, in order to, uh, in order to make sure the, gov- the, the, the citizenry do not rebel, you've got to first disarm them. I mean, is that part of the continuity plan? It's interesting, and I only thought about this 
after the book was actually released, which is just about a month ago, you know, I never saw a single document, even with the Emergency Detention Act and all these other things that I found in doing this research, that ever mentioned taking guns away or any sort of gun control in any one of these documents. Um, now, maybe that was just, you know, assumed. I don't know. But, this, the, you know, how they kind of defined everything else to a T at certain times, you would think somewhere along the line somebody who said, oh, by the way, we have to go get everybody's guns if we're going to do any of this. But at the same time, you know, the roundup of guns, in my opinion, doesn't make sense unless they do want to basically stop our ability to revolt against what our own government is. All right. With that crashing note, we'll take a time out and uh, come back with Brian Tui, author of Disaster Government, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. There is no loyalty except loyalty to loyalty. There is no love except love and paper. All competing pleasures we will destroy. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Can't remember the, the movie that's, that the line from, is from. Uh, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stomping on your face forever. That's, uh, thank you, uh, Dan, in the other room, 1984. Hey, uh, Dan Ellison, my old technical producer, is back on the board uh, for one night only. <laughs> uh, Dan was my uh, very first uh, technical op here at uh, AM 740, the flagship station uh, here in Toronto. And uh, then uh, after a couple of years, I guess, uh, of hearing the truth... It drove him to distraction, and he had to get out and find himself and left the show and uh, traveled to PEI and then across the country and uh, has just uh, joined, uh, joined us here on the show while uh, our regular producer, Tim, is taking so much needed time off. You can only do this show for so long, and then it gets to you, <laughs> I tell you. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome, Dan. Good to have you aboard. Uh, Brian Tui is also with us, uh, the author of Disaster Government, National Emergencies, Continuity of Government, and You. Let me just crib here uh, from the back cover because this really says it all. Uh, let me just, oh, wait, wait, there's the book. Okay. Do you have a plan in the event of an emergency? The federal government does. Only its continuity of government operations during a national emergency involve rationing food, water, and energy, confiscating your personal vehicle, controlling the media, and telling you where to work and for what wage, while our leaders in the United States sit safely ensconced within bases buried deep underground. Sound like a conspiracy theory? Unfortunately, these are the facts as, re as revealed by the government's own top-secret files within the pages of Disaster Government. Now, Brian, what did you uncover in terms of where these underground bunkers and so forth would be? Uh, you know, what kind of, a, of facilities are being made available uh, to members of the executive branch and their family? Are they already in place? Do, they know, do we know where they are? Yes and no. 
<laughs> that's it's kind of one of the funny ironic parts of this is there's two main underground bases that are known that are huge supposedly one's mount weather and the other one's known as raven rock or site r and raven rock is basically the alternate site for the pentagon and that's about six miles from camp david and allegedly there's a tunnel that connects camp david to raven rock so if the president was at camp david he could be whisked underground to raven rock to be safe and the other one is mount weather which um is basically the alternate site for congress to go to now the problem is is obviously these both places are known i know about them other people know about them therefore our enemies know about them which makes them basically you know irrelevant which means there has to be an alternate site somewhere for the alternate sites and where those are and how much money was spent to build them and how elaborate and big they are who knows but they're got to be out there because you can't rely on the known knowns to protect you in the event of emergency. Is there um, a budget uh, for the continuity uh, of government plans? For example, would you, would you be able to ascertain how much money is being funneled into the construction of these huge underground bunkers? Uh, uh, or is this part of the, uh, the black ops program? Oh, this is completely black ops. This is off the table. This is top secret type stuff. I mean, one of the known... Um, once you can actually visit an underground site, is at the Greenbrier Hotel, which I believe is in West Virginia. And the federal government actually funded the Greenbrier to build an extra wing onto the hotel, so at the same time they could build this underground uh, base. And that was supposed to be one of the original relocation sites for members of Congress. And now people can go visit it because it got outed by, uh, I think it was Ted Gupp of the Washington Post. I think he was the one who outed it in the 1990s, so they had to build another one somewhere. Um, but the funny thing is, is the Government Accountability Office did a study and asked members of Congress, you know, basically said, in a nuclear war, the bombs are coming, we're going to relocate you to one of these underground facilities, will you go? And a vast number of congressmen said they wouldn't because they couldn't bring their families along. I mean, there's basically just enough space for the members of Congress and some staff, and that's it. And a lot of the people said they wouldn't even go and fulfill their posts, which, again, makes you wonder, well, is all this necessary? Is it worth spending these billions of dollars upon, or what? So while the, the U.S. members of the U.S. government are, are, as you say, safely ensconced within these bases buried deep underground, uh, let's say in the event of nuclear war. Now, you know, at, during the, the Cold War, there was something called the civil defense uh, and and I know in Russia, for example, uh, they prepared uh, in the event of a nuclear attack from the United States, they built, you know, miles and miles of underground uh, shelters for their people. The United States did not. I mean, if you wanted to go out and build your own bomb shelter in your backyard, that was up to you. But there was there was there was nothing provided for the American citizens. Uh, because I guess they felt that the whole idea of mutual assured destruction was if your citizenry on both sides are vulnerable, then neither side will attack. But I just, this is kind of similar, where the the U.S. government, they're providing for themselves, they're going to make sure they're safe and sound, and the rest of us, well, you're on your own, folks. Well, that's not entirely true, though. I mean, the U.S. government did actually fund a lot of... um basically fallout shelters in public buildings in a lot of the major cities. And they did um, stock those very well. I mean, in fact, I think, I forget the exact numbers, but they had, I think, enough food and water and uh, fallout shelter space for, gosh, I want to say at least 
70 or 80 million people. They did, but no more, right? No, I mean, it wasn't for everybody. And um, the thing was, yeah, they did basically tell people, if you want to survive, go build your own shelter, and here's the plans how to do it, and good luck with that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they did provide something. The problem was is that, obviously, after a while, it you know, the stocks only lasted so long, the food spoiled, the water spoiled, and everything just kind of went to pot. But they did even create, you know, evacuation routes. And some, like I say, some of the continuity government planning actually is beneficial. The like evacuation routes that they designed for surviving a nuclear war to get people out of cities are still being used today for like hurricane evacuations. All right, Brian, let me uh, jump in here. We'll take another time out. Back on the other side, disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you, Brian Tui, here on the Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, Brian Tui stays with us for a few moments yet as the conspiracy show winds down for another week. You know, uh, March uh, 1st, coming up very quickly, uh, we have the um, Congress voting on uh, or, or negotiating on uh, this, you know, how to avoid the sequestration, this uh, sequestration, a series of automatic uh, budget cuts in the U.S. Uh, and... You know, this constant haranguing about, you know, uh, voting on raising the debt ceiling and so forth. I seem to recall that uh, back in 2008, when the whole crash sort of started, uh, and um, President Obama, newly minted to President Obama, I guess this was in 2009, uh, asking Congress to approve this major, major uh, a bailout. Uh, they called it a stimulus package. Most of the money went to the banks, and some of the, there was a there was a congressman, if memory serves, who came out and said that he was threatened if he didn't vote for it that there would be martial law declared in the United States. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do recall that. And here we are again. Uh, I'm wondering with the, uh, the U.S., some say, on the verge of, you know, economic collapse and going into default and so forth, and this, these, these automatic budget cuts, some say, could send the U.S. tail, you know, tail spinning back into a, maybe even a depression. Um, could this be sort of the linchpin that could lead to something like martial law? Let's say the, uh, you know, the Congress, the, the, the Democrats, the Republicans can't get together they uh, they they can't come to an agreement, and these automatic budget cuts come in and send the U.S. sends the U.S. into another major recession. Could something like that be the linchpin for this martial law to be called? I think it would be a very good tipping point. I mean, a very good starting, you know, to get that snowball going. Because if that did occur, then I think you would see, you know, the type of civil unrest that you know people get angry, mobs form, that sort of thing. It could be looked at as a potential revolution, and that kicks in the Insurrection Act, and then they can send in the troops. Because, I mean, it makes you wonder, as an American, like for myself, which I didn't realize, is, you know, never before in America's history did we have a standing army meant to basically patrol the United States. But we have that now in U.S. NORTHCOM, which is based in Colorado, which is, of course, basically the center of the United States. And given the right set of circumstances, there's upwards of perhaps as many as 20,000 troops stationed for U.S. NORTHCOM, which means, you know, if New York City goes up in a riot or some sort of other, 
you know, perceived threat, then we could send the troops in to quell it. And then that's, again, that's just more of the snowball. It just keeps going from there, which is a kind of a scary situation, and you're right. Given just a couple of weeks from now, that could happen. Well, given that uh, many of the U.S. forces, of course, are overseas, the U.S. has, you know, I believe over 100 um, uh, bases uh, in places like Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, in the Great Horn of Africa, you name it, uh, that they wouldn't have enough troops here. And some people have, have noted these rather interesting military exercises where you have Russian soldiers over on a U.S. soil conducting military exercises. Is that part of the plan, uh, maybe even another way of skirting around uh, posse comitatus, to use foreign troops against U.S. citizens? I never found anything in the documentation that noted as such, but I think it's a very real possibility because one of the arguments that a lot of people have was that there would be no way that you know a U.S. soldier would fire upon a U.S. citizen, although even... The Army studied this and found that actually there are a lot of number of U.S. soldiers who would fire upon U.S. citizens given the GO code. But, um, yeah, exactly. If you bring in U.N. troops or NATO forces or something like that, like our troops have been used in other countries, why can't that happen to us? Just because we assume it can't doesn't mean it won't. This is a, a total nightmare scenario. And uh, the way I see it happening, I'm, it's just it's the old uh, proverbial you know, frog that's placed in a pot of cold water and you slowly turn up the heat and the frog doesn't even realize it, but uh, he just notices the warm getting, the water getting warmer and warmer and before the frog knows it, he's basically been poached. Um, so, I mean, are these things, in your mind, are they happening slowly, surreptitiously behind the scenes? I mean, you mentioned the suspension of habeas corpus. I mean, that's one of the first things that happen, happens under a declaration of martial law. Um, but it's already essentially happened under the Patriot Act. Uh, so, I mean, how do you see this, this breaking out? Is it just gradually, incrementally, or is it going to happen basically overnight? The president comes on and says, I'm declaring a national state of emergency and uh, we're suspending the Constitution. Well, I hope neither one transpires. <laughs> obviously, but yeah, but, obviously. But I think, I think a more effective way of doing it is the slow play. I think that because, you know, more people just kind of get distracted and lose interest and they don't realize what's going on. And, I mean, I think that's one of the things I try to show in the book, that there's a lot of things that are going on. Like, for example, we're under 25 national emergencies and we don't know it. I mean, that's something that people should be aware of. And you should realize what the government can do if such a situation is occurring. And it is ongoing right now. I think if you did it, like you said, all overnight where, you know, bam, boom, you know, this happens and this happens and we declare martial law and, you know, U.N. troops are here, uh, then you get into just exactly like a nightmare scenario. And I don't think that benefits the powers that be. It doesn't benefit the American citizens. It doesn't help anybody. I think the slow play is would be the smarter play if that's the way you're going to do it. But when you've got everything lined up, like I point out in the book, you have it all lined up, all you need is that one moment to start the dominoes falling. And is, is there a mechanism in place for basically scaling back or getting back to normal uh, once martial law is uh, declared or once civil liberties are suspended or the Constitution is suspended? Or is that totally left up to the discretion of the Caesar, the president? The way it's written is it's totally up to, like you said, the Caesar. It's totally up to who's in charge. There's no scale back a moment where it says after certain... The only thing that exists was, I think it's in the Stafford Disaster Act, 
where it does allow basically military troops to help in the event of a disaster like a hurricane, but only for 10 days. And then after 10 days, basically another edict has to be issued to give them another 10 days or more time to work on said disaster. But that's the only limiting factor that I ever found in any of these documents that say, hey, this is supposed to end, even with a national emergency. I mean, the funny part with a national emergency is the National Emergency Act of 1976 was supposed to limit every national emergency to just one year. Because obviously with emergency, it shouldn't go on forever. Yet a lot of the national emergencies were under, like the one from 9-11, well, that's over a decade old, and it keeps getting renewed every year, and a lot of these do. That's why we're under so many of them, because they never end. They're, like, perpetual. And that's what the National Emergencies Act was supposed to do, was supposed to end that sort of behavior, but it didn't. It actually made it increase exponentially. So is there any mechanism for the legislative branch uh, to institute any sort of checks and balances? Could they, could they pass a law? Um, which would severely restrict the executive branch's power in this regard? Well, they shouldn't really have to. That's the sad part. What's happened is Congress has basically continually given this stuff over to the president to do. They basically said, in the event of emergency, and again, this to a certain extent it makes sense, in the event of a real emergency, like a nuclear war, you can't wait for Congress to get together, have a vote, have an argument, and figure out what's right and what's wrong. You have to act now. And the problem is, is they just continually giving all this power over to the president, which basically puts them into like a dictatorship, because they're not using their checks and balances like they should. And the Supreme Court hasn't done anything either to eliminate this sort of behavior. So you know, that's why we have so many executive orders and signing statements and these sort of things, which I also get into in the book, the executive order aspect of it all. That's given the president the power to act over and above his stated capacity. What happens to now? I, I don't know exactly what the um, uh, what military officers uh, you know pledge to do when they assume their their command. But I know, for example, you know, we know the president is sworn to uphold the Constitution. If individuals in the Pentagon, generals in the Pentagon, uh, I mean, are they not sworn to uphold the Constitution? And if so, how do they reconcile that when they are given an, an order from the president? Uh, to, uh, you know, carry out this, this, uh, this act. I mean, isn't that a, a kind of a conflict? Aren't they conflicted at that point? Do I, do I uphold the Constitution, or do I follow the orders from this new dictator? Well, that is going to be where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> That's going to be the telling tale. Is You're right, because the military people are sworn to uphold the Constitution and defend it from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if you, as a general, I would hope, you see a president overstepping his bounds and demanding you do something that is completely unconstitutional, even if the United States is in a state of emergency, even if there are riots, even if there is kind of an uprising, you would hope that that general and the generals, I should say, would really stick more to the Constitution than, you know, the demands of one crazy person who happens to be the president. Uh, So what we could see, then, if the executive branch uh, attempted to invoke martial law, uh, we, could see the, we could see a civil war. We could see certain flag officers in the military and, their, and the people under their command siding with the Constitution and certain military people and, and, and those under their command siding with the president slash dictator. Yeah, it's good. Like I say, it's really set up for a legal coup and if it gets to that point, then, yeah, shooting war between two factions within the United States 
And again, you could throw on on top perhaps NATO or UN forces as well, <laughs> and then really see what happens. What do you um, what do you think people should do with this information, uh, Brian? What's the takeaway then for for listeners that are concerned about this, as we all should be, obviously. I think obviously more activism, more political activism in any way, you know, each individual deems fit. I mean, one of the things, too, I bring up in the book, which we really touch upon, which is fine, but, you know, like the United States government tells you, we're not going to help you in the event of a national, of a disaster. We're not going to be there to help you. You should be able to survive on your own for at least three days without any sort of outside help. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to become a disaster prepper and stockpile a year's worth of food, but... You know, the government could make it better known that they're not going to help you and you need to be ready to help yourself. And that's another aspect of all of this. But I I think, you know, again, it's just people need to be more aware and more active and more vocal about what's right and what's wrong and what's constitutional and what's not. Disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you, Brian Tui, thank you for this. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Not at all. My pleasure. Yeah, I think we all figured out long ago the government is not here to help, and we're pretty much on our own. Uh, but um, good work for Brian Tui for bringing this to our attention. Thank you, Dan Ellison. Good to see you again, my old friend. Back next week, talking about the secret history of the reptilians with Scott Allen Roberts. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Hang in there, mighty Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.